Hello, welcome to the Reforming Worship Podcast, brought to you by the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan. A 21st century Reformation cry for the Christian church to return to the scriptures and worship God as he has prescribed in the Bible. I'm Andrew Smitty, your host and content manager, introducing Pastor Caleb Leach as he walks us through the third installment of the four-part sub-series on sovereignty today concerning God's will over man. Pastor Caleb, you are live, sir. Thank you again, Andrew. And uh, we are back with our series on the sovereignty of God. We are talking now about God's sovereignty over evil. We've talked about just kind of an introduction to the sovereignty of God, kind of stretching our minds to think about this subject biblically. Um, from there, we kind of went about the sovereignty of God in general. What is What does the word of God say about the sovereignty of God, how God rules over his creation? Is he causing and allowing? Is his sovereignty exhaustive? And of course, to an Augustinian or reformed person or what have you, that's like saying sovereign sovereignty, saying exhaustive sovereignty. Um, today, we want to talk about God sovereignly decreeing that evil should exist. We've talked about, um, we already talked about what happens when God's will goes up against man's will. Man's will doesn't stand a chance. That's probably the opposite of what you've been taught. You've probably been taught um, that God doesn't violate uh, humans' free will on principle. And, and that's just simply un true but for uh, a longer explanation that's not really something that we can, we can summarize that's a that's a that's a deeper truth to unpack um, you might want to check out our last installment on the sovereignty series but now we're talking about God being sovereignty is sovereign over evil and to bridge this subject I'd really like to read from you read for you from John Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion. This is from Book 1, Chapter 18. From other passage in which God is said to draw or bend Satan himself and all the reprobate to his will, a more difficult question arises. For the carnal mind can scarcely comprehend how, when acting by their means, he contracts no taint from their impurity, nay, how in the common operation he is exempt from all guilt and can justly condemn his own ministers. Uh, To paraphrase, it boggles people's minds sometimes how God can say uh, that he's directly directing the evil of man, and then he turns around and judges the man for being evil. Hence, a distinction has been invented between doing and permitting, because to many it seemed altogether inexplicable how Satan and all the wicked are so under the hand and authority of God that he directs their malice to whatever end he uh, pleases and employs their iniquity to execute his judgments. Close quote for a second. Again, to paraphrase, the invention between God allowing and causing, between God doing and permitting, is an invention of man who is trying to acquit God despite what the Bible clearly says. 
John Calvin again. The modesty of those who are thus alarmed at the appearance of absurdity might perhaps be excused did they not endeavor to vindicate the justice of God from every semblance of stigma by defending an untruth. Close quote. Paraphrasing again. People don't mind defending an untruth as long as they're, in their mind, acquitting their view of God. And this is not okay. John Calvin again. It seems absurd that man should be blinded by the will and command of God and yet be forthwith punished for his blindness. Hence, recourse is um, had to the evasion that this is done only by the permission and not also by the will of God. He himself, however, openly declaring that he does this, repudiates the evasion. In other words, they might get close quote. In other words, they might get away with uh, with with this evasion of of uh, of, uh, of causing and allowing. You know, trying to acquit God of this. They might have gotten away with that if God didn't openly declare that He's doing this. That men do nothing save the secret instigation of God and do not discuss and deliberate on anything but what he has previously decreed with himself and brings to pass by his secret direction is proved by numberless clear passages of Scripture. Now, that's a little hard to swallow. I do understand that. And we do really need to understand that it is the very clear teaching of Scripture that God does these things. We need to understand this. Um, remember uh, Job 1, 11. This is Satan talking. Now, remember what happened before verse 11. God says, have you considered my servant Job? God initiated this conversation. Think about that for a second. God antagonizes Satan with this. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, Satan didn't say, Let me touch him. Let me take all that he has. No, Satan says to God, Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. In a former podcast, I talked about guns don't kill people, people kill people. I'm here to tell you, Satan <laughs> Satan does evil, but only because God created him to be the antagonist. You understand, God didn't permit Satan to touch him. God touched Job, and he used Satan as a tool. Satan understood that. Why don't you? Why is Satan's theodicy so much more biblical than ours? I know it's offensive, but it's in the text. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters, Job, sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. 
and also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. And then the same thing happens with the Chaldeans, and then there's a great wind, and then there's fire, all in the same passage. Everything Job has is taken by great wind, fire, Sabians, and Chaldeans. Now, did Satan get wind and fire privileges, or does God cause the tide of the sea, like Jeremiah 31 mentions? Is God sovereign over creation, that he directs it by the very word of his power in Genesis 1? What about the Sabians and the Chaldeans? They're people like you and I. They made free will decisions as to what to have for breakfast that morning. Yet, by the hand of God, are we really saying that Satan overtook their will? By the hand of God, God is directing the evil of this world. Not just Satan, but also the the Sabians and the Chaldeans. Not just Satan, Sabians, and the Chaldeans, but he also has put his spirit in Job so that Job would worship. He rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked from my mother's womb, and naked, naked I came from my mother's womb, excuse me, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, please, if you wrongly attribute um, actions to God, when the Pharisees told Jesus that he was casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub, that was sin. If Job accused God of doing something that God did not do, that would have been sin. But the Sabians and the Chaldeans and Satan, they all had a part in it. Yes, as tools of God. A carpenter can use, can use a, a skill saw, a chop saw, um, and, and then tongue oil. All right, um, Only one of those would appear pleasant to the wood. But it's God who is building something. It's God who is making something. These are all just tools. Now, are you a tool being raised up for destruction, or are you a tool for mercy? We long to be on God's team. 1 Kings 22.20-22 I have a New King James Version of the Bible that when I read this, there are, there are tear stains in that page because I didn't think God did this. Oh man, was I offended at God. Remember Matthew 11, blessed is he who's not offended because of him. 1 Kings 22, 20-22, the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. This is God saying this. You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Do you see, God doesn't lie. God can't lie. If he spoke something that wasn't, it would be. That's what creation was. So how does, sanction, how does God sanction deceit? 
of the prophets so that Ahab will go fall at Ramoth Gilead. How does he do this? God doesn't have to lie. He's got a punk devil to do it for him. God raises up lying spirits in the hearts of his prophets. There's no way around that. God did that. Satan and unbelievers are just tools. 1 Samuel 16 And I'm going to jump around just a little bit. I'm going to start in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Okay, so the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Did you catch it? An evil spirit from Satan? No. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Verse 15. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Satan and all the evil spirits are tools of God. This is um, this is quite hard to swallow if you haven't been exposed to these things before. Thank you for giving me a hearing. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. Now, this is this context is different. This is 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 12. Now, if you remember the context here, David took Bathsheba and then arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed. It, it, it's, a, it's a longer story than that, but that will do for now. The prophet Nathan come and, comes and confronts David, and David says, I have sinned. And Nathan says, the Lord has already put away your sin, but you've given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. And then here's, here's what the Lord's going to do. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. Did you, you see that? God says, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it discreetly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Now think about that. David's son Absalom, who did lie with his wives, and all of Israel knew about it, all that evil that came up from his house, uh, brother murdering stepbrother, um, his daughter getting raped, him being driven from the holy city, all those things are horribly evil on the part of the secondary cause, the human will that was doing it for its own sick pleasure. But God owned it and said, I will raise up evil in your own house. I will take your wives and give them and Indeed, you did it secretly, but still God speaking, I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. The character of God is untouched as the orderer and the controller of sin. The character of God is untouched as the one who brings about all things after the counsel of his will. Now, I really hope that nobody saw this God sovereignty over evil tag and said, oh, I want to skip to that one. This is not the study to skip to. We laid a lot of groundwork. But just in case there is somebody, maybe this will make somebody go back and listen to the other podcasts. Okay, praise God. God has decreed the end 
from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my purpose will stand, I will do all my pleasure. God has created all things after the counsel of his own will. God saw everybody's unformed substance and wrote down in his book all their days before them when yet there were none. God is the author of this story. And if you take a beautiful book and you take out evil, you ruined the story. If you have been sticking with me through this through this uh, entire series, you're no you're no doubt a little bit tired of hearing that. God can write a story that contains all sorts of evil, and the evil is going to be the darkest right before the brightest light, and Christ comes back and vindicates His name. Sorry, my post millennial friends. When we when we understand this, the God is not condemned because he wrote that sin should exist any more than any human author is condemned because he wrote down that sin would exist. Think of the last movie you saw that really gripped your heart. Who was having the hardest time? Who was having the most emotional, maybe even physical hardships? The main characters, the characters you love the most, went through the most in every, even a movie that resonates with you. Now, did you once stop the DVD player because what's the point? The director has already predestined the end? No, that's what captivates you about a good story, is that there's high levels of endurance. There's great, great courage in the face of all sorts of evil. There's true love. There's... Well, the classical understanding is romance. It's beautiful. Now, it's hard going through some of this in time and in history, but but really, would we prefer that our pain receptors take an easier road? Just simply, um, in light of the glory of God, in light of God glorifying himself, would we really say, yes, Lord, I know I know you're showing yourself powerful over this evil, and if not today, in the last day, and I, I know it's going to kick off a worship service in heaven, according to Revelation 18.20, but I really wish you would pacify my pain receptors now. Christian, bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Remember, God is good, so this story will not end where it is right now. I got some homework for you. Isaiah 10, God calls Assyria the rod of his anger and the staff of his indignation. He's going to bring up Assyria to judge Israel in Isaiah 10. And Assyria is horrific. Assyria is a brutal people. They're not concerned about administering the justice of God. They like raping and pillaging and killing and burning and doing all that kind of gross stuff. And and you can do a study on the Assyrians. Brutal, brutal people. Yet, when the Lord has completed his work, the prince of Assyria will have an arrogant heart. And he'll think that he did this by his own doing. And God will cut him down and punish the fruit of his arrogant heart. Can God raise up evil and then judge it? You bet. Remember Genesis 50, we can start in verse 19. Joseph, thrown in a pit, 
sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, delivered from that. If anybody had a right to be better, it was Joseph. And he tells his brothers, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it. And there's a semantic parallel in the original language in the Hebrew here, but God meant it for good. Same action. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But let me hammer this home. Acts 4, 27, this is the early church praying. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Herod, evil. Pontius Pilate, cowardly and evil. The Gentiles, just like killing people. The people of Israel, rejecting their Messiah. Evil, 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 evil. What did they come together to do? Four different categories of evil with four different motivations to crucify the sinless son of David. To do whatever God's hand and God's purpose allowed to occur? No, predestined to occur. And I just want to ask you this. What was God's motivation? Was God's motivation any of those categories of evil? No, God's motivation in predestining the worst evil in all of human history, God's purpose, was that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would would render himself as a guilt offering. He would see his seed. He would prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. It was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross, bearing its shame, despising its shame. And the good pleasure of the Lord did prosper in his hand. Christ died for the church, Acts twenty twenty eight, The greatest and most beautiful display of justice and therefore our mercy was at the hands of a sovereign God predestining the evils of all sorts of men. Blessed is he who is not offended because of these things. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Reforming Worship. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the teaching. We are a ministry dedicated to the church without borders and would love to hear from you, your thoughts and questions. We invite them all. We can be contacted at reformingworship at gmail.com You can visit us on Facebook or at thechurchofphiladelphia.net. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also tune in on SoundCloud for our Lord's Day sermon series updated weekly. Blessings in the name of our Savior. See you next time.